0: I am Marilyn, and I am an alcoholic, and I am thrilled to be here. Thank you, Ralph, for all of these wonderful things that you do and for this day, too. Like Bill, I thought, well, I'll I'll, uh, just, I certainly want to hear my friend Kent, and so I'll sign on at 9 a.m., but then I'll take long breaks, and I'm a busy person, I have a lot to do. I was drawn in. I couldn't leave. This has been so good. And my goodness, the um, six o'clock hour with Bill. I heard Bill talk about meditation at Stateline, and I just thought this is the most profound uh, summary of meditation I've ever heard. And he outdid it tonight, too, of of uh, the distinction between the ego and the authentic self. And uh, the struggle between the two, and how peace is won at the suppression of the ego, ego deflation and depth, and uh anyway, it was just remarkable, Bill, and I thank you for that. Thank all the speakers because this has been a day of wisdom and love for Alcoholics Anonymous. I think I'm my probably my life has been changed by just this one day, so it's terrific. I'm going to talk about step 12. And as Bill mentioned so beautifully that all of these steps are interrelated and my goodness, step 12 encapsulates all of the other steps. And if you read the 12 and 12, there's a whole section that goes through steps one through uh, 11 and talks about 12. And so, of course, that uh, that takes in the whole program and our program. And Step 12 did not really begin in 1939 when Bill Wilson did much of the writing in the big book. And it didn't even begin in 1935 when Dr. Bob took his last drink. And we call that the birthday of Alcoholics Anonymous. But it's interesting that Bill, Bill Wilson, our co-founder, attributes the origin of Alcoholics Anonymous to the visit between Roland Hazard and Carl Jung. And he does that because in that visit, uh, we recall that poor Roland Hazard was a hopeless, hopeless alcoholic. And he went to see Dr. Jung. Dr. Jung was a great psychologist in Switzerland and he was able to keep Roland sobered while Roland was under his care. But then he went back to the States and very quickly began drinking himself to death again. So then he went back to see Dr. Jung. And this was around 1930, 1931. And finally, Dr. Jung had to give him the sad news. You are hopeless. (laughs) We don't want to hear that. But uh, that was the sad news. And Carl Jung explained to him, I've been trying to produce in you a, a conversion, a spiritual experience that would allow these great displacements and rearrangements of the personality to take place. Old concepts being swept away, replaced by new ones. And it just is not happening. It requires a spiritual experience, a conversion. And Roland protested, I belong to a church. And Jung, Carl Jung pointed out that that's not quite doing it. You know, you go to church, but that is not what I'm talking about. So he assumed that Roland would go home and die of alcoholism. But much to everyone's surprise, he went home and became involved in the Oxford group. And that was kind of a precursor to Alcoholics Anonymous with some of the basic ideas of our fellowship. Um, and it was uh, religiously based. Uh, Dr. Bob was actually in the Oxford group, as was um Henrietta Sieberling and some of these famous people in our our history. But what happened was that Roland got involved in the Oxford group and had that conversion experience that was described by Carl Jung. And he never drank again. He lived to, I think, be 1940 and 1945, all sober years. And a part of that conversion experience is a desire, it seems, to replace the thirst for alcohol with the thirst for alcoholics to go after them, to be a part of their recovery. And so he at, at first um, found Ebby Thatcher and <laughs> kind of took him under his wing Got him sober. Well, he didn't get him sober. Of course, higher power gets people sober, but, uh, shared his experience, strength and hope. And Ebby found, uh, sobriety and paid a visit to Bill Wilson in town's hospital and in his place too. And they, uh, uh, that was a, a beginning, an opening of Bill's mind, um, which eventually turned into that white light experience in the hospital. And that was uh, the beginning of Bill's sobriety. One alcoholic talking to another. Um, and that was uh, back in uh, 1934, 1935, that all of this was happening. Um, and Bill was acquainted with Roland Hazard from the Oxford group. And I think that through the years, he realized the importance Of this process that Carl Jung talked about. And he finally wanted to communicate with Dr. Jung, but didn't do that until 1961. He wrote a letter, a long letter to uh, Carl Jung, and explained what had happened in his own life, told him about Alcoholics Anonymous, and also said, I want to tell you what happened to our friend Roland. And he described the uh, the conversion that Roland experienced in his long sobriety, um, and Bill went on to say in this letter, and I'm just going to read it because it's a, such a, a rich kind of um, summation of what happens. Uh, Bill Wilson told Dr. Young, my friend Edwin, that's Abby Thatcher, came to the hospital bringing me a copy of William James's. Varieties of Religious Experience. The book gave me the realization that most conversion experiences, whatever their variety, do have a common denominator of ego collapse at depth. The individual faces an impossible dilemma. In my case, the dilemma had been created by my compulsive drinking and the deep feeling of hopelessness had been vastly deepened Still more by my alcoholic friend when he acquainted me with your verdict of hopelessness, rejecting, respecting Roland Age. In the wake of my spiritual experience, there came a vision of a society of alcoholics, each identifying with and transmitting his experience to the next, chain style, and each suffer. If each sufferer were to carry the news of the scientific hopelessness of alcoholism to each new prospect, he might be able to lay every newcomer wide open to a transforming spiritual experience. And this has indeed come to pass. And Carl Jung wrote back to uh, Bill Wilson and mentioned uh, how happy he was that Roland found sobriety. And uh, just went on to summarize this process as spiritus contra spiritum. In other words, the spirit of a higher power can counteract that of spirits, namely alcohol. Um, and in this, this realization that Bill had was this process that we undergo in Alcoholics Anonymous. First, the utter hopelessness. We can't do it ourselves, we're dying. We have fought the war. We've fought it nobly sometimes, and we lost. Let me get something. Here we go. This is a gift from my sponsor. Yes, it is time to wave the white flag. And those of us who are lucky enough to experience that hopelessness and find that it leads into surrender, We are the ones that have a chance to find lasting sobriety. And in that kind of hopelessness for me, um, I reached that point, of course, with alcohol. But I had started out and never, never, ever occurred to me that that would be my fate. I wanted to be a great scientist. And finally, I just wanted to be a scientist. But I loved science and I felt that science could give me those things that I so wanted. I wanted to have a happy family. I wanted to have a successful work career and be a productive person. I wanted to have friends. I wanted to have the ability to have fun. I wanted these things and I expected to get them from science. And so I became a scientist. I was working in a lab. I had a research project. I had a, a director. I had a white lab coat. I looked like a scientist. People believed I was a scientist. And yet something replaced science as my higher power, and it was right there in the laboratory. It was called 90% ethanol, and it was right on the shelf in the lab. That's a 180-proof drink, and it is mighty good. And uh, it had a little federal seal on it, of course. We bought it uh, from the government offices for research purposes so we did we did a lot of research it was the effect of alcohol on the human personality and so that was justified and so we would drink all day in the lab some of us and then go out to bars at night and at that point my life took a turn for the better I felt I had been miserable and discontented um, because I was basically selfish and self-centered focusing on me, and as Bill talked about, <laughs> being alone in a room and thinking about myself and plotting the future and realizing how hopeless it was. And uh, uh, so life was not fun until I discovered that magic, magic spirits on the shelf. And then I felt like, I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. I am doing my very best work. This is wonderful. Um, of course, I had to drink all day. And I had to drink more than I was able to from just those little bottles on the shelf. And by that time, I had become a beer lover too. So I just moved a lot of cases of beer into a great big refrigerator, a size, a a room, a refrigerated room. And I was able to change my research project um, on muscle protein to muscle protein at low temperatures. So I could move into the refrigerator and drink beer all day, and then go out at night, so this was the delusion, the illusion, this was the magic that happened, which was telling me you are a great scientist now. You are doing your best work. But actually, when I discovered alcohol and turned to that as my higher power, I had pretty much stopped working entirely. And I spent a few years there because there was a lot of money in science. That was back in the 60s. That was called Big Science. And people like me, leeches on the system, were supported. (laughs) And uh, it was a couple of years before the director really began to ask me what I'd been doing there. And I had always reassured him, fine, my work is going well, and he'd leave me alone to drink. And uh, finally, he told me to write up what I'd been doing. And that was doomsday for me because... I looked at my lab book, and uh, I had a few doodles. I'd drawn pictures of the lab mice. I'd written a few limericks. There was a man from Nantucket. Um, It was just not going to be publishable as a research project. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, my coping skills were just to hide. So I went home and hid. And these were the years of depraved drinking, Uh, There was uh, a lot of unplanned stuff. I retained only one skill, and that was how to go out and buy more to drink. And there was something unplanned. I, I was getting very confused by all of this drinking that I was doing. And I just did not know what day it was. I'd come out of a blackout. Is it morning? Is it night? It looks like it's getting gray outside, but is the sun coming up or going down? Could it be a weekend? My husband was working hard. He worked every day of the week, so I couldn't tell by his comings and goings. And he was in the lab most of the time, leaving me a lot of time just to sit at home and drink. And as I said, I was getting sicker and sicker, and I went to the doctor, had some tests done, and the doctor said, I have some good news. You are pregnant. And I thought, How could this be happening? Oh, my gosh. Could it be mine? I wonder if it's mine. And it was. And then there were two more after that. And Bill was finally really noticing big time, like when he'd come home and I was out in the car with little children. and, uh, And he brought in his mother who took over the household and scared me to death. This was my hopelessness. I just was doing nothing but drinking now. I'd been uh, kind of moved out to the garage just to get away from my mother-in-law and life was going on inside the house and I was there all alone. Uh, I just knew at that point that my life had gone to hell and yet I was not at that surrender point. I was getting more and more hopeless every day and the hopelessness took the form of coming to at 3 o'clock in the morning and thinking, tomorrow I'm not going to drink. And then finally coming to at 3 o'clock in the morning and realizing, yes, I am going to drink. I drink every day. I'm going to drink tomorrow and the next day and the next day, and I'm going to die. And I'm going to probably cause a lot of damage in my way An utter hopelessness. And I don't know why I was lucky enough to surrender, to wave that white flag Mm -hmm. and just give up. And for me, it it meant calling central office and turning myself in. And I was reluctant to do that. But, of course, that's what they're there for. They just love desperate alcoholics. And they sent a 12-stepper. And... In the old days, we used to do 12-step work, and that uh, is our 12th step, but it's only a part of our 12th step. But she probably got up in the morning and got on her knees and thanked God for sobriety and asked God what she could do for the alcoholic who still suffers. And somehow somebody at central office was motivated to call her and somehow... She was then given an address to go to a poor suffering alcoholic. And she went and told me her story, carrying the message to the suffering alcoholic. And I felt sorry for her. I mean, that was a horrible story. I mean, she would lost her job. She was drinking. <laughs> her family life had gone to hell. Tears were coming down my cheeks. Uh, and then she got real happy and she was talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said she was going to take me to a meeting. Well, I'd been in a dark garage for a lot of lot of the time. And uh I was not keen on going out into the real world, especially to something as scary as Alcoholics Anonymous, but she said that she would do that. And the surrender then was, okay, I will go peacefully. And she just led me out into a car and off to a meeting. And I heard the wonderful Marion W. speak at that meeting. And she told my story. And after that meeting, I ran up and the big surrender. I asked her to be my sponsor. And she said she would if I would come to her home group, which just happened to be the Pacific Group in West Los Angeles, this great big active group with a founder, Clancy I., who was like a sheepdog, keeping that group in good order. And I was uh, horrified. I wanted dark, quiet, like my garage. (laughs) And there were people. Come to meetings early. And we don't stay sober very long without this process that Dr. Jung talked about, the conversion experience, the transformation. And how does that come about? Well, it comes about, with the sides of that triangle, unity, recovery, service, exemplified in many ways by our steps, traditions, and concepts. Um, So I was just thrown into this great big stream of sobriety. Uh, My sponsor threw me in the river and said, swim along with everybody else. And they were uh, taking these steps, writing inventories, doing all these things that our wonderful speakers talked about today. These steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and so I did that too because of peer pressure mainly. Um, I did not like it. I, my first three years, I felt insane in the program. I was just moving from driving hideous, painful anxiety to more hideous, deep suicidal depression. <laughs> Those were my two states. And every now and then I'd have some excitement with a panic attack, but that was the first three years. Um, During that time, though, I I was listening to people talk, and we have, I sometimes think of it as oral treatment, like doctors talk about oral medication. Uh, We tell stories to one another. Now, why in the world would that allow the hopeless alcoholic to find recovery and live a long and seemingly normal life, just talking to one another, telling stories to one another? As I began to understand what was going on, the second tradition began to make a little bit of sense to me. A loving God as he expresses himself in our group conscience. And I believe that's much more than just business meeting where we take a vote. Uh, that's a group conscience vote. But I believe that this power that we call God sometimes call higher power, call spirit of the universe doesn't, I think that whatever that power is doesn't mind what we call it. But we've got to call to it. We have to try to communicate with it. And I believe that this power is only too willing to invest itself, himself, herself into our fellowship. How do I know that? I look at the clientele. <laughs> we heard the stories today. We heard some of those stories where we came from. I mean, I came from the garage. We came from hopelessness and in a group of alcoholics without this influence of higher power. That's like a barroom brawl. (laughs) We are not civilized people. But we get together in this fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and invoke this power. And somehow, some way, this power infuses itself. And I believe that that power was at work when this wonderful Lorena, my 12-stepper, somehow was motivated to come to my house and take me to a meeting. I believe that higher power was at work at central office when that person took interest in my case and set that up to happen. And I believe that that higher power was at work when that wonderful sponsor, Marion Marion W. was the speaker at my, my first meeting. And who knows, What I say is under the influence of a higher power, most of the time I'm, well, on any given day, I can be completely nuts and crazy. Uh, But somehow, some way, when I sponsor people and talk to them, sometimes that higher power can influence what I say so that they get the message that they need to hear to stay sober for one more day. I don't know how it happens. I just know that it does. But back in those first three years, when I was so miserable, there was the great Chuck See, great, uh, and a a person, one of our early members, who uh, is responsible for a retreat that he gave that was turned into a new pair of glasses. That's a book that many of us have read. But I, I, was lucky enough to know him because I got sober. My sobriety date is February 8th, 1972. And he was healthy and speaking a lot in our group. And he was the sponsor of our our group founder and leader, Clancy. So we saw a lot of Chuck C. And there was something that Chuck C. knew, a great big thing. And he called that The father, he's the pappy, and we're his kids, he would say, with kind of a Texas accent. The first time I heard this man, I thought this is the corniest man I've ever heard in my life. And moreover, he had that funny little, tee-hee-hee, a funny kind of a laugh. And then I began to listen, and then my ears opened, and I realized that he is talking about something that he knows, not something he knows about. It's something that he knows. He's the pappy. He's, and we're his kids, and we begin our Lord's Prayer with that acknowledgement. Our Father, he would say things like, um, infinite Father, infinite Child, there's always going to be as much ahead of us as there is right now. That's what infinity is. We live forever. We evolve forever, growing ever closer into the image that this Father as of us, this parent. And I I was hypnotized by by what he was saying. And moreover, one of these character defects (laughs) that was used to my benefit was envy. I envied that. I envied what he had. I wanted what he had. And it led me to a prayer, which for me was kind of the third step and seventh step, all rolled into one by my intent, and that was, When I was all alone, I just looked up and to the right for some reason, saying, if you're there, I'd like to know you. I'd like to have experience of you. And if you're really there, I am willing to go on any path you pick for me. And I meant it. I meant it. For a long time in sobriety, I thought that that was the beginning of the transformation and now I look back on that and I realize that in order even to make that prayer, a lot of the transformation had already occurred. I was just acknowledging what had, was already happening. I had surrendered. I had waved the white flag. I'd given my will and my life over to the care of my sponsor, to the care of my home group, to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I had a great desire to know what was beyond that that was empowering us to to get well, so that transformation had occurred, and I just put it into words with my, I want to get to know you, I want experience of you, and I'm willing to go on any path you pick for me. In the years that followed, they were followed by another kind of pain, but it was not just that anxiety and depression of those early years, but it was what Carl Jung described as those deep emotional displacements and rearrangements. Some days I felt that I was going crazy, a lot of deep emotion coming to the surface and finding resolution. I'd had sad things happened in the past. I never experienced emotion about it. My father was in a car crash and lay in a coma for 12 years and I never experienced emotion about that. It was just beyond anything I could process. So it got tucked away and it was one of those reasons why I grew up crooked. And all of that had to come to the surface, being triggered by these talks in Alcoholics Anonymous, people talking about grief and resolution of grief, talking about experiences of losing parents. And that came to the surface and found resolution. And I was getting freer and freer. And then by taking these steps that were so beautifully talked about, um, one of these These times, it was fairly sudden for me. The veil parted, and I came into contact with a God of my very own. And it was the experience of, you've been there all along, haven't you? (laughs) I mean, it was just that realization, and I can't put it into words. Bill described that experience of sitting on the bench and looking at the wind blowing through the trees, the spirit Moving, and that was my experience. I could never put it into words, but I just knew I just knew this great big thing, and uh, it changed it changed my whole attitude about life and sobriety. I could relax into it a lot more so i did I did have that that conversion experience that we long for, that we need in order to be effective carriers of the message. And what does that mean? Well, it's well described in uh, working with others in our big book. And it's also well described in the 12 and 12. But that's an interesting thing. It's it's working with others. And I like uh, the 12 and 12, and I like the big book too. And I like that it's a different perspective that Bill Wilson had when he was fairly newly sober, and talking with newly sober people, they wrote um, the chapter on working with the others. And service in Alcoholics Anonymous really was going into bars and hospitals and talking with people in advanced stages of alcoholism, carrying the message and trying to get them to understand what had happened to them and to find sobriety. Bill was discouraged because he would carry his spiritual message, and for months on end, nobody was getting sober. Uh, But finally, a few drunks got sober. Dr. Bob came into his life. A fellowship was going. Bill D., man on the bed, came into the fellowship. And so Bill wrote the big book. And in describing 12-step work, I think it's exemplified. Let's see. On page 97, I love this. This is what 12-step work is. Helping others is the foundation stone of your recovery. A kindly act once in a while isn't enough. You have to act the good Samaritan every day if need be. It may be the loss of many nights sleep, great interference with your pleasures, interruptions to your business. It may mean sharing your money and your home, counseling frantic wives and relatives, Innumerable trips to police courts, sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and asylums. Your telephone may jangle at any time, day or night. Your wife or husband, we could add, may sometimes say that she is neglected. A drunk may smash your furniture in your home and burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he's violent. Sometimes you'll have to call a doctor and administer sedatives under his direction. Another time you have to send for the police or an ambulance. Occasionally, you'll have to meet such conditions. Well, uh, that is not the 12-step work for most of us most of the time, but that was the 12-step work for those early alcoholics because that was what they were dealing with. And Bill Wilson certainly lived that life and wrote about it in 1939. And then when he revisited the steps in the 12 and 12. He talked about service in Alcoholics Anonymous, and by that time, he had presented the traditions to the uh, International Conference, and they had been uh, adopted by the fellowship, and we have many, many ways of being of service. And the 12 and 12 talks about um, speaking at a meeting, sharing your experience, strength, and hope. That's one thing we heard a lot of today. That is 12-step work. Certainly talking one-on-one uh, to the suffering alcoholic is the traditional 12-step work. But he also points out that you don't have to be a speaker. You can be the coffee maker. I mean, that's God in a cup. I <laughs> we're alcoholics. And we want to come in and have that delicious cup of coffee with shaky hands and uh We want a big cup so it doesn't shake out over the brim. And, uh, and that is just, that is important too. We need 12 step workers who set up the chairs who make it possible. 12 step work is also reaching into your pocket and dropping money in the basket so that a meeting place can be rented. These are all acts of service. And then we now have the concepts that were adopted later so that there is service possible on the state level on the national level um uh, the area assembly a process is coming up uh at in locally in Los Angeles this year that's the area assembly where all of the 15 areas get together and talk about the welfare of alcoholics anonymous and so we are are rich in the ways that we can perform service um, in the beginning, I just saw service as only sponsorship, and I was in this great big active group, the Pacific group, and uh, people were sponsoring other people, and nobody wanted me to be a sponsor. But my sponsor said to me, look, there are many, many things that you can do. Uh Take a commitment at the meeting. And so I took a commitment. I was the coffee maker. And, uh, I was, uh, I came in and, uh, much to my surprise, the coffee was already made. So I went over to the literature table to help the literature chairman. And, uh, she had arranged all the pamphlets and I pointed out to her, you know, this could be so much more effective if you arrange them by the colors of the rainbow. There's a red, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo and violet. It would be aesthetically pleasing. It would draw people to the table. We would sell big books. It would be wonderful. And she said, well, I hear you, but I want to go from the more general to the more specific, like a member's eye view, and then something a little more specific, sponsorship, and then something about Native Americans and Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, from the general to the specific, no, but the colors aren't right. So we were arguing she wasn't arguing. I was trying to control her. It was a one-way argument. Um, and who steps up to the table? But the group leader and founder, Clancy. And he said, are you the literature chair? And I said, no. Uh, I'm trying to help the literature chair. Mistake. First mistake. And he said, well, do you have a job at the meeting? And I said, I'm the coffee maker. Second mistake. And he said, why aren't you in making coffee? And the third big mistake. When I got to the meeting, the coffee was already made. <laughs> ah, Clancy looked at me and he said, you are the coffee maker. You did not come to make coffee. If you're the coffee maker, you come an hour early. This is a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Coffee is important. <laughs> He embarrassed me in front of so many people. I thought this is the most hideous experience of my life. I stopped talking to him for about 17 years. Now he didn't notice, but it made me feel good for a while. Uh, but I learned something from that, that, uh, if I'm going to serve in Alcoholics Anonymous, I should listen to my crew chief and do what that person says. Learn how to take direction. That's a part of surrender, and it served me well when the steps took effect and I was civilized. I got to go back to school. I got to go back to work, and these things that I learned in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, allowed me allowed me to um, pass for normal. Um, as I said, I wanted to sponsor people though, and, and I got a f- couple of sponsees. But they only stayed for a day or two because I was really pretty nuts in those days. And they went on to people who were much more reasonable. And I was sad and I felt rejected. And what am I doing wrong? And my sponsor would give me encouragement. And she would say, just keep talking to people. There will be some people who are so desperate. They will come to you. Um, And finally, one did come. And I got to be a sponsor and that was the wonderful Irma. And I have an academic background. And so she was perfect. She she stayed with me. And we read the book together. And I made handouts. And I would give them to her. And they were little quizzes on the steps. And she would fill them out. And then I would give her a grade, like maybe B And she would have to go back and study some more. And, and she she was working for those A's. And, um, and, oh, we had such rapport, and it was so wonderful. And we were coming up month after month after month, and she was doing so well. She wrote an inventory, and I graded that, and uh, and we got into amends and wrote little things on index cards. It was just perfect. And as we were approaching that that 11th month, I, I began to think, I'm going to get to Give her a birthday cake at my home group. And we were meeting in university synagogue in those days. And the sponsor and sponsee walk down a long aisle and then stand at the birthday table. And the sponsor holds up a birthday cake. And the sponsee blows out the candles, gives the sponsor a big hug, and then runs up to the podium and says wonderful things about the sponsor. And I was beginning to plan my outfit. And it was going to be wonderful. Wonderful. And everybody would say, look at Marilyn. She's a wonderful sponsor and I'll get more sponsees and I will become famous. As Bill mentioned, famous in an organization of alcoholics who are completely anonymous. And uh, but I was so happy. But one morning Irma called and she was not happy. She said, Marilyn, I've got bad news. I drank. And I just screamed, Irma, how could you do that to me? I I was heartbroken. Well, I almost had to go to Al-Anon that day to release newcomers. I love Al-Anon. It is a wonderful program. And uh, it has helped so many people. And I have so much respect for it. And uh, And that's exactly what I needed. I needed release, release of the newcomer. And it's taken me a long time to get that ego out of the way. I want my sponsees to do well. I want them to like me. I don't want them to leave me. I don't want rejection. And I begin to get the idea that I'm keeping them sober. If they happen to relapse, then I get depressed and think I did something wrong and I got them drunk. And after time and time and time of experience after experience, I have gotten to that point where I really do begin to understand most of the time that God keeps us sober. And it's with the cooperation of the sponsee. If the sponsee really, really wants sobriety and takes these steps that we are, that are suggested for us, which we really have to take, but they're suggested, um, then there is a good chance that this higher power can work in that person's life and keep that person sober. But if things go wrong and that person drinks, it is nothing that I did or didn't do so much as just something that was between sponsor and sponsee and uh, higher power. And, uh, And I can step back and just watch it happen, but I do have an obligation. I have an obligation to be there, be present, be present for the alcoholic. Our our responsibility statement, which is so beautiful. When anyone, anywhere reaches out a hand for help, I want AA always to be there, the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous, always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. And that is my obligation to carry this message. But it's not a bad one. It is not a bad one at all. As I said, this conversion experience has this wonderful side effect, which is this thirst for alcohol, this unquenchable thirst for alcohol that was killing me and ruining my life and the lives of people around me. This thirst somehow is converted to a thirst for Alcoholics Anonymous, a passion for this fellowship, a love for this fellowship, and a love for my fellow alcoholics. And it's not the kind of romantic love so much as just rejoicing when somebody does well in the program. There's a wonderful priest that we lost, Father Terry R., a great mentor to many of us, passed away on December 21st in this past year. And he says that a first sign of recovery is the joy that you feel when somebody else recovers in the fellowship. And he also says that uh, the first glimpse of a higher power in an alcoholic's life is the greeting that a newcomer gets walking into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's why the greeter is so important you are welcome. We love you. We want the best for you. Come in, it's warm. It's warm in here. Um, as I said, um, this fellowship is this, uh, this amazing thing that gives us this opportunity to get involved in the lives of other alcoholics And through that process, because we are constantly giving this away, this relationship with higher power constantly deepens. And the first time I had that spiritual awakening, our 12-step talks about that. Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, well, I thought that that's it. I am in nirvana. It happened, and that's it, and that's the way it will always be. And it will not change over time. Well, I was wrong about that. Um, it has changed. There's a uh, a belief in Buddhism, apparently. Now, I am not a Buddhist, but my closest friend in Alcoholics Anonymous, my friend of 50 years in the program, Diana, uh, is a Buddhist. And she... Uh, uh, helps me understand some concepts. And there is one that if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> well, we are peaceful folks. That sounded pretty violent. Uh, what does that mean? I said to Diana and her interpretation as a Buddhist is that uh, you think that you have met the higher power and you go along the road with the higher power. And then all of a sudden, there's a pothole or an explosion or something, and it shakes you up, and you realize that you did not know the higher power at all, that what you believed is just altogether mistaken. The higher power is killed. That one dies. And if we persist, and the big book, the 12 and 12, talks about that. Sometimes prayer is almost sickening. You know, we lose faith Prayer doesn't seem to be talking to anything or anybody. Nothing is there. It was all an illusion. We persist through that, and then it comes back, and then it is deeper and more complex. And that that began to happen to me. Um, There were some minor incidents that kind of shook my faith. But along the way, I had a, a sponsee that I fell in love with, the wonderful Sally. Love in the agape sense, in the AA sense. I just saw the program working in her life, and that was my joy. I can't see it in myself and in my own spiritual development or emotional sobriety, but I can see it in others, and I could sure see it in her. She was a social worker, and that was good. That was a wonderful, noble profession, but she loved art, and she loved art history, and she longed to be an art historian. And so we talked and we said, why don't you take a few steps in that direction? And she did. And it seemed to be so easy for her. It was made possible. And we've come to believe through all of these coincidences that happen that recovery is everywhere. We just open our eyes and we see recovery. And the things that we should be doing are made easy. And we take that as what we should be doing, God's will especially if it's something approved by our fellows in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, my sponsor has this saying, that, don't try harder, resist less, relax. Just do the next right thing, relax into it. Don't try so hard to get your own way to figure out the 12th, the seven-year plan in your life, relax into it and trust your higher power, resist less. And she was doing that. And so she applied to uh, graduate school and she got accepted and she got a stipend so she could cut back on work and concentrate on art history. And we could see how higher power was working in her life. And it deepened my faith just to see how God was acting in Sally's life. And so she graduated with a PhD in art history and got a postdoc. That is the first step to an academic career. That's the first big step. And uh, she was uh, doing research in art history. And I was acquainted with her and celebrated how this program was working in her life and her higher power was, was helping herself. And... She was doing research at the Getty Museum here. And because of that, she and I would go to museums together. And she was my own special guide as an art historian. See how God was working in my life. (laughs) It was bliss. And then the miracle of all miracles happened. She was offered a tenure track position in a university. And every academic knows that that is the gold standard to get offered a tenure-track position in a good university. And I just marveled that you don't resist, you follow God's will, and look where it leads you. And we celebrated that. And then after a while before she took that position, she called and she had some terrible pain on her left side, and it was getting deeper. And I said, go to the doctor. And she went to the doctor, and the doctor did some examinations and talked about a mass. And that's not something you want to hear your doctor say. Mass is usually not good news. And they did a little exploratory surgery and learned that it was stage four pancreatic cancer. And I just said, what is this illusion that I have been living in? I couldn't say, see how God is working in your life. There's no God. I lost my faith. It was a real crisis of faith. And that was one of those times where I couldn't even be a support to Sally. Thank God other people could be. And I have to confess a terrible failure in her life. I could not be there for her. And uh, she handled that situation so much better than I did I am happy to say and she kept her faith and it deepened for her and I could see that but I could not be there in that journey with her because I had lost my own faith and you can't fake that to another person or at least I couldn't um, and yet I, I was happy that that she had that great comfort in those months that followed and what happened to me was that I tried to do what our book does, persist with prayer through that time, but I knew that nothing was there. It's all a fake. And we recover by some kind of psychological influence, all of us working together. I just, I, 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 I didn't believe it anymore. Well, it was a funny thing that, and I believe that higher power was very present for me sort of calling to me, Marilyn, I'm still here, and uh, trying to get through to me. But what really got through to me was my young daughter, Susie, um, who had grown up and had become a scientist, because she is not an alcoholic, so she did not turn to the spirits on the laboratory shelf. And she became a professor of uh, immunology. And... Even though she's not an alcoholic, she has deep faith and uh, converted to Catholicism and loves God and trusts God and very deep faith. And she and I talked and I told her she knew all about the story. And so she just remembered a story that she told to me. And she said, remember when we were small and dad used to read Winnie the Pooh stories to us. And I, I remembered that. And she said, remember that one where Piglet says to Winnie the Pooh, what's your favorite thing? And Winnie the Pooh says, eating honey. And then he, he thinks, no, it's not, it's not eating honey. It's, it's that moment before eating honey. It's that delicious anticipation. And, She pointed out that that's what Sally had. Sally had that moment before eating honey, that prize position offered in the university to be a tenure track professor in the university. Susie, on the other hand, is a professor in a university, and she knows what that's like. Students saying, I need an A instead of a B. What's wrong with you? faculty meetings where there is squabble over squabble, bigger, 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 bigger. There's a saying, why are academic politics so terribly vicious? And the answer is because the stakes are so terribly small. (laughs) And this is life in the academic world. And Susie was spared that. She had that anticipation and the joy of a good life, well lived, and expectation that what lies beyond is going to be even more joyful and somehow again that moment of everything opening up again of i see the big picture i missed it entirely everybody in alcoholics anonymous is doing interesting stuff interesting stuff and everybody i know and i have lost So many friends in Alcoholics Anonymous because I am so terribly old. And that's what happens to you when you get old is you begin to lose your friends and they cross over to the other side. And each one is engaged in something really, really interesting. I remember my friend Vince Y passed away unexpectedly, sudden heart attack. And he was just about to put together a really wonderful career. It was happening for him. Moment of anticipation, went out happy. And that, that happens with so many of us. Most of us are doing something interesting at every moment, something that we don't especially want to leave. But because of this relationship that we have with a higher power, we know it's going to be fine here and in the hereafter. The grief is really for the people who are left behind. And we experience the loss. And I have had many losses now just because I'm old. And, uh, and yet each time there is a great loss, there is a replacement. My sponsor of 30 years, Clancy passed away. And I have a new sponsor, Father Tom W, who is a wonderful, wonderful sponsor. He's responsible for giving me the white flag when I begin to fight too hard. He says, wave that, Marilyn, <laughs> surrender. Uh, and my dear, sweet Bill passed away after 60 years together with the same man. And, uh, and he was a physicist, a scientist, but he began to have visitors from the other side. And as he crossed over, he knew that there was something really good on the other side. And said that, um, uh, he would, he would be there waiting for me. And I believe that that's true. Um, over 10 years ago, we lost our son. And that was uh, something that I thought I could never survive. But I was told, accept, accept, and there will be joy after that. And that is true. I had the examples like the great Sandy Beach, whom we lost a few years ago, who had lost his two daughters the year before. So I knew that it was safe. I didn't know how. But after two years of grief, things began to change. We missed our son. I still miss our son, David. He seemed to have a wonderful life, and I loved him very much. I thought that I would have him through my old age as company. And he was going to scatter my ashes in the mountains. Instead, I scattered his. And yet, God always finds a replacement. What has happened is that my grandson, Adam, is 23 years old, and he graduated from college, and he wanted to take what they call a gap year before uh, maybe going to school a little bit longer. And um, and he got a job in downtown Los Angeles, and one day he called up and he said, Grandma, can I come live with you? <laughs> and he is the most delightful young grandson of all time. I love Adam and he is living here and bringing so much joy to my life. I can't say that he's a replacement for David so much as a second chance. Uh, And uh, we go to concerts together, we go to movies together, we have meals together. Um, This is so much joy, altogether unexpected. And I just say that I looked to science for a while to give me those things that I think everybody wants. A happy family, a success in work where you feel productive and can make a difference in other people's lives, friends, and having a sense of purpose and being able to help other people along the way. I thought that that would come from science. It did not. It came from Alcoholics Anonymous. It came from you. Thank you for it.